Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forged in the Dark Games and their designers. I'm Jacob. And I'm Nichelle. And we will be your hosts for today's episode. Today we sit down with our guest Umbra to talk about their game Future Shock and choosing dice for your game. Welcome, Umbra. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm Umbra, he, him, generally, and I'm very glad to be here. Welcome. We're happy to have you. Let's start with some of your origin story. What got you into game design? Well, it's a long story, I think. Like a lot of people of my generation, I suspect, of nerdum, got into playing D&D with friends in my early tens, preteen years, over a number of editions of that game, eventually branching out into the indie role-playing games a bit more, seeing what's out there. And I think it was Apocalypse World that made me realize just how much you can do as a designer, how much like what you say matters. Mm -hmm. And I've always been interested in games and game design, like my, my original degree. I do have a bachelor, bachelor's degree in like video game design. Mm-hmm. Mm, cool. And there's a lot of my designs from here that like, translate back and forth. Like the, the fields are not so separated that there's no overlap. Take a lot of lessons from like video game design and programming, take them into my games, like tabletop games as well. Yeah, I think we've talked to a couple other people who have some video game design background as well. That uh, seems not uncommon. And how did that transition from Apocalypse World and D&D into Blades in the Dark? Yeah, I can't exactly remember where I heard, heard about Blades the first. I've been in a number of like, tabletop discords over the years. And it's just a sort of game that came up on lots of people's radars around the same time, I think. I was like, okay, yeah, this is the next step of PBTA. This is where you go from here. This is, like, what if PBTA, but maybe a little bit more. Dig back into the, like, crunchy side, quote-unquote, of, like, fiction-first gaming. And that intrigued me. Because, like, Apocalypse World is wonderful. Of course, like, that's a defining game of a generation. Sure. But there's definitely stuff that you can build upon. It's like a natural progression to go from one of those systems into, yeah. Yeah, it definitely feels like a step towards like people that want a little bit more like grip to hold on to in their games. Like there's more little dials you can turn in something like Blades compared to some, something like Apocalypse Brawl, where you just have the moves and that's it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot, lot more. I like to call it design space, mm-hmm. which is a term from video game design, where like based on like what's in the game, what you can do with it. And there's a lot more stuff in a system like Blades. Like you have position and effect, you have all the factors that go into like potency and everything. So Blades definitely has like a more dense design space in that sense. Like there's more little bits you can dig onto. Yeah. Definitely. And you can take any little bit and change it and make it a whole new game that way and everything. Yeah. Is Future Shock your first foray into tabletop game design? It's definitely my biggest. I had the, the idea for Future Shock when I first read Eclipse Face 
back in, it would have been like 2017, I think. This was while I was still in school, while I was still getting that video game design degree. So Eclipse Face is sort of the defining transhuman, like transhumanist tabletop game at the moment, comparable to stuff like Mindjammer, I suppose. But Eclipse Face is sort of in a league of its own. So I was reading that game and just getting engrossed in the world. Like this, like the philosophy that they're presenting, the sci-fi of it, I was just there, day one, moment one. This is my shit. Nice. But then I sort of fell out of the mechanics a little bit. Because it's, it's got this like D100-based system that has like, you crit when you roll doubles, and then you just need to roll under your number. But like if you roll too far under your number, it's not so good. It's, like, it's, it's worse. And then you just, there's lots of like little unintuitive fiddly stuff in there and i had the idea this was like the seed for future shock what if we took this and made it first not so fucking sad because eclipse face is just a sad setting and what if we like gave it some good mechanics and this was right around the time there was also learning about blades like i had probably played blades for a while at this point I'm like you know what these two seem like they fit together. This fiction with these mechanics, put them together, and it should be a good game. And now it's four years later, and I think I have a good game in there. Nice. But since then, there's been a lot of smaller projects. Like I, I have, like I think a lot of Fortunate Dark designers that I've heard on the podcast before, lots of projects in the making. Once you start, it's hard to stop coming up with ideas. It really is. It's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the idea stage is definitely the, the easiest part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then it comes to what what I and like I've heard this from other designers as well. Is call, call it the draw the rest of the owl mm-hmm. stage game design. Mm-hmm. You, you you got your like basic circles. It's there. And then you use step two, draw the rest of the owl. Do all the other parts that make this idea that you have into a game. Yeah, if you've never seen that that meme, uh, Google it because it's very funny. It's just, it's very good. So let's talk about your game. What is the elevator pitch of Future Shock? What's it about? What's this apart? What I would say, if I would summarize it in one sentence, and I, I've had to a few times, it's a transhumanist art collective game about the, the far future of humanity, the post-scarcity setting where we, we've settled all over the the solar system and you're playing a bunch of artists a small community that are trying to trying to get famous trying to get their word out there and get their art onto the eyeballs of as many people as possible because when when you have everything that you need you go dig into what you want and for these crews, these communities that you that we play. It's all about getting to the big stages, to getting famous, seeing your name stars. So is it a generally positive future then? I would say it, it's not a utopia in that sense. I think that's also something that I want to balance. Like on the one hand we have like Eclipse Face, which I mentioned is very sad. Like the transhumanist apocalypse game in a lot of senses. Mm-hmm. But I also want to avoid the like, oh yeah, everything's fine. Like, we, we've fixed conflict. We don't do that anymore. 
we're always sitting in a circle smiling at each other no yeah mm -hmm. yeah i don't think there's a game in that yeah there's not a lot of fun in there yeah so there, there's still a core tenet of like transhumanism in the in the philosophy of the game like it, it's all about trying to improve the human condition trying to make life as good as possible for as many people as possible the conflict comes in when different communities have different ideas of how to do that that's where you get these ideologies clashing between the various art communes and other prominent communities in the setting so you've already mentioned one but what other inspirations and touchstones fed into future shock I don't personally know much about transhumanism, so if you name a few, I might have heard of them, but you can perhaps explain what that means as well. I can start with transhumanism. I think that's the the easy one. It's a fairly divided term, I would say. It, it means a lot of different things to different people. The way I think about it, and this is something that I outline a bit in the first book of Future Shock, is that transhumanism at its core is about helping people. It's about making sure that everyone has what they need and that they can get exactly what they need. And then there's also an element of what I call transhuman fiction, which is sort of, the, I imagine, like the popular idea of transhumanism, where it's like, we're hopping into different bodies and we're like uploading our brains to the cloud. It sort of leans into games like Deus Ex, series and books like mm -hmm. Altered Carbon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On separate topic. I'm very glad that Altered Carbon came out when it did. Because it's very like I can just point to that and say, that, yeah, that's sort of like sort of thing that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But not not quite so sad. <laughs> not quite so messed up. Not quite so dystopian. And then I think what I've also been thinking about, because that's like the the wider sense of the setting. There's this ambition among humanity that we like we need to fix. <laughs> we need to put we need to get our shit together. We need to fix all of our problems. Mm -hmm. And then everyone has different ideas on how to do that. But like that's at least the goal. And as for like the crews and the communities themselves, I'm looking at a lot of like musical documentaries, like documentaries about bands, like pseudo-documentaries. Mm -hmm. Like I think when I watched the Bohemian Rhapsody, like mm -hmm. Queen pseudo-documentary, that definitely felt like like this could have been a future shock story. <laughs> Interesting. It's like seeing like a, a band's rise to fame and how it like falls apart and how it like gets back together and all the drama the <laughs> drama. Drama and trauma that comes with that. Sure. Uh, do you have different crews for your game? Right now there's only the one. Okay. Because I'm in the process of putting together a quick start, which Hopefully, fingers crossed, should be out by the time that this airs. Mm -hmm. Ooh. I plan to do to finish it by the end of August. I've made a promise to the internet, and I plan to keep that promise. Nice. Yeah, so I've been working a fair amount on getting that out. Yeah, so right now the crew type or the community type that I'm working on is the, the band. Mm -hmm. so for the quick start, you're, pl you're playing as a band that you've, you've booked a gig in this club in a place that's like a research station that's orbiting Venus. And at the last moment, you realize that the the club owner has basically cheated you out, out of the gig. Oh, no. When you get back on stage, when you get your message out there, 
start your start your road to fame, and then you can work out how to get there. Uh, that's the plan at the moment. After that, I want to build on and do more crew types. After that, like I had ideas for like a racing crew in space, mm -hmm. racing around like the asteroid belt and everything. I also wanted to do like a world building crew, which is to like set up a virtual space for themselves and wanted to construct it. Interesting. I also wanted to do like out the like outer solar system explorers. There's plenty of things that I want to do. I need to find the time for it. Sure. Yeah. Said no game designer ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm very unique. In this, right. in, yeah, exactly. Like, unlike everyone else, I have ideas. Exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, those ideas can become plants and get out there before the the end of the year. This is the plan for that? Oh, nice. I want to get something out now so that people can get a feel for what playing the game is like, mm -hmm. and then dig into the longer play structure a bit after that. Digging into downtime and long-term advancement will be in a, in a later release. Part of the reason we brought you on is to talk about Dyson Math. Yes. So before we get into the main topic fully, is there anything that your game does interesting or differently about its action system or dice or anything like that? I'm very glad that you asked. We talked a little bit about body hopping as like a, a fixture in transhumanism, like transhuman fiction. And that, that is something that Future Shock does incorporate. So your character is made up of two parts. You have your ego, which is your mind, like your consciousness, and you have your sleeve which is your body, the body that you're in at the moment. And both of those two have different sets of action ratings. So to, to come up with an action, you combine them. You take one set of dots from your sleeve, which is your body, and one set of dots from your mind. And you put them together to make an action. And you can combine these in any way that you want. So there's plenty of options for different actions. I think technically there's 36 different ones. Wow. Yeah, six of each. 36. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for the fiction, the setting that you've set up. Yeah, that was something I wanted to do. I set down early on, that I wanted to do some sort of body hopping, and I wanted to make it manageable. I wanted to make it fun and intuitive. And hopefully I've landed there. <laughs> but yeah, let's talk let's talk about math. Yes, yes. Let's move into our main topic discussion. So I see you all the time on the Discord when people have questions about dice and math. So today that's what we're gonna talk about. Do you have any broad strokes opinions or, or thoughts on dice and math and how it affects your game? I'm gonna preface this by saying that I'm currently studying to be a math teacher mm -hmm. and math has been my main passion since I was like, I want to say like 13 or 14. That's my main jam. Games and game design come second to that, really. So there's a fair amount that I could say about math and how it, it, how it fits into the game, into games in general. But I think the most important part, if I would like, nail down a thing that it's important about getting when it comes to math in game design, 
is that the math is there in your game to help sell the dream, is how I, how I like to phrase it. And when I talk about selling the dream, it's about making sure that the fiction that you're presenting actually is reflected in the mechanics of your choice. Mm -hmm. yeah. So let's say, for example, that you're making a game where the characters are supposed to be super competent. Like they're at the top of their field, they're experts at what they do. And then you have the main mechanic of the role, of the system, be something that sets them up for failure most of the time. It's like you have like a 25% chance of succeeding in a given role. That doesn't really line up with the fiction that you presented. And that can be something that designers struggle with sometimes. Because it's not always clear when it comes to math how the decisions that you make affect what sort of stories you'll be able to tell. Yeah, it's very much like throwing a rock into a lake or like a pebble and how it ripples and impacts the next ripple. Yeah, for sure. It's always how I've visualized it. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that are hard to decipher at first. The, the example that I keep coming back to that I've mentioned a fair amount of times in the Discord is Blitz in the Dark's dice system and how it works. I'm going to assume that our listeners are familiar with how it works, mm -hmm. the basic Blitz dice system. But just as, as a quick run through, you have a bunch of six-sided dice. You roll them, and the highest number is your result. And unless you get multiple sixes, you get a crit. The six is the highest result we mostly care about. And like there is a, a basic idea there that if we get more dice, which is mostly what the game gives us, that's good. Like we, we want more dice. The more dice we can get, the better. But the way that the math works out, getting one more die can be more or less valuable based on how many you already have. So if you, if you already have four dice, you probably don't need to push yourself. You don't need to pay two stress to get one more die. It's not going to help as much. And the cost is going to outweigh the possible benefit. Yes, because the cost is linear. It's constant. But the benefit that you get goes down pretty pretty quickly. I would say it's, it's almost like, or the, like the benefit goes down pretty quickly. I'd almost say like it's near exponential how it works. And to players and also game designers who are thinking about this, that's not immediately obvious, I would think, unless you've got a mathematics background, but a basic player is going to see more dice is better. This is really important. I better get more dice, you know, regardless of how much you start with. Yeah, like, I need to get eight dice for this roll. Yeah. No, you don't need to get five Devil's Bargains and <laughs> three set of actions for this roll to work out. You're probably fine with four. And indeed, not just from, like, a player perspective, but also from, a, like, a designer point of view, four dice in general, and this is the point that I keep coming back to, is where you hit the, that the probability of getting a six is more than 50%. So, and when you have four dice, you're more likely to roll a six than not. So at that point, getting more dice gets less and less interesting. Like you're, you're already more likely to succeed 
then you are to fail. And as we, as we all know, as designers and players, I think like just getting what you want is not that interesting. No. Just straight up succeeding. Like Blades shines the most in that like four to five partial success space. So that's normally where we want to live. No, oh, quite a few of my tables do the exact same thing. They don't want to have a lot of dice. At first, when you first start the system, you always see players trying to maximize their dice or maximize their resistances. But I, I have found that the longer you've played the system or even any of the forge systems, the more you go towards, I'm, I'm going to play with less dice. I want to see what happens. I want to explore the various different mechanics. Yeah, and playing off that, I'm currently playtesting a new one-shot game after having spent years developing a long campaign game. And you're more likely to get new players for one-shot games and long games you can count on people having some experience with the system already. So just as a note to the audience as well, that's something to consider that one-shot games are going to attract new players. New players are going to want more dice. That might be a trap, I guess. Yeah. It's always a trap. <laughs> Beware of traps. So, Umbra, I, th I think that brings up a good point. How does the dice or math mechanic of dice that we were just discussing really shine in Future Shock? What, what would you say is like the one mechanic or like the one aspect of Future Shock that you're like, oh yeah, this is where, if, if you're a math junkie like me, you know, this is where <laughs> it's really going to shine. Yeah, so I think with Future Shock in, in itself, I'm not looking to do too much in the ways of like revolutionary math. It's still D6 dice pool system. But what I do that Blades itself doesn't do and that I haven't seen a lot of Forge in the Dark games do is that it's all opposed rolls. Mm. It's all the players rolling against the GM. So the GM gets to roll dice again. That is that has changed. Yeah, that is new. That's very similar to an opposing clock then, probably, or like a tug-of-war clock, but with dice. Yeah, in a sense. It's a, it's a little bit of back and forth. Future Shock is also taking a lot of inspiration from an older game, an older indie darling by the name of Dogs in the Vineyard, which you might be familiar with. Mm -hmm. For those of you who haven't studied the history of the indie game role-playing scene, Dogs in the Vineyard is, is very much like Vincent Baker's previous game before Apocalypse World and everything. It was his big game before Apocalypse World came out. And it also features like opposed dice rolls. And what I w wanted to do with Future Shock that I really liked from that system, and also something that I try to incorporate in designs elsewhere that I've just found that I like, is that both sides roll their dice at the beginning of a conflict, and then you take turns trading off pairs of them, basically. Like the GM says, like, okay, this is an enemy or like a trouble what I'm calling it in the game, that has like a rating of 7. Can you beat a 7? And then you need to pick dice from what you've rolled, to so say that you've rolled like a 6 and a 4. Like, okay, yeah, I take these two, and I beat your 7 with two dice. And then depending on how many dice you choose, you get different effects. So like beating it with one die is the best. 
between root 2 is your average result. And then between root 3 or more is the bad one. So that sort of maps to the various levels of success, I would say, in like a regular Blades game. So one die is a six equivalent? Yeah, almost say that it's like a crit, almost. You also get something good out of it. That's interesting. Yeah, whereas like the three or more is sort of your, your four to five. You do overcome this trouble, but you get something bad out of it. So I think what I wanted to do with Future Shock in particular wasn't so much about the math, even though that of course comes into it. It's more like an exercise in more pure game design in that sense. Like it, it's about decision points for the players. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And this also wraps back to like the philosophy of the game, that I wanted the, the players to feel like they're part of something larger, more so than like just being people that are doing their thing. Like they're part of not just their community, but the setting at large is like. It's not something that they're disconnected from. It's something that they're situated in. And just like this framing of trouble as not something that's like opposed to them specifically, that's that's just there and that they need to overcome in some way. Ties back into that. Transcendence and the overall theme. No, it's really interesting. It's very foreign to me in this aspect because like I have been playing Blades. I'm not familiar with dogs in the vineyard or those types of things. The only game really that I've ever played with opposing dice is D&D 3.5 and Shadowrun. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. They, they were they were wonderful experiences and they got me into gaming. Um, I was very, very fortunate to have good groups with those. Otherwise, who knows where it would be. But it is very interesting. It almost seems like you didn't strip it down, but it's almost like you gave that clarity of simplicity for the dice here in Future Shock. Yeah, so I wanted to give the players agency while still making uh, still making sure that they're part of this greater thing. So I want them to see what the world is around them, but then it's up to them to see what they do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very cool that you can use the dice mechanics to convey that tone. Yeah, it also comes more of like the dice as... Like, of course, math plays into it here. Like, we're talking expected values of dice and averages and everything. How you beat ties and everything. There's definitely math in there. But I wanted to emphasize more, like, the decision and agency and what what that looks like when you're part of something greater. Very cool. So, to transition a little bit away from Future Shock, what other systems have you seen on the Discord and, and what other systems do you think would work or what other traps have you seen designers fall into? Something, I don't want to call them interventions, but I've had <laughs> a few interactions, name one here, with Mikey, the designer for Slug Blaster. Mm-hmm. We've had a few talks about various interactions for going viral in their game and getting exponential explosion when you're getting super famous. and. The first version of that mechanic, I can't remember when we talked about it, it must be like a few months ago by now. There was this mechanic where you rolled a die, you rolled a few dice, I think, 
to see like how much style you get, how much like fame you get from this particular roll. But then if you roll the six, you got to add one more die to your pool and then roll again. And uh, yeah, they, they were interested in trying to figure out, okay, what does this look like on average? Because this can be a bit like a bit hard to think about if you're not like super in tune with like, the combinatorics of math and how, how how it works. Like and even me who has like studied it, I'm not sure like how to like calculate that straight up. So what I like to do in these situations where it can be hard to like run the math, like crunch the numbers, is to make simulations. Over the, la the last year, so I've been getting into a programming language called Python. There's lots of usage in math and related fields in general, and writing simple like dice simulations. But so like, set up this system that we've talked about, like rolling a bunch of dice, and whenever you get a six on any of them, get more dice, roll again, and then we get a read on like okay, like how much style are we expecting? from this move, what's the, the benefit here? And what we would realize eventually is that if you hit like critical mass with these dice, which usually happened at around like six dice or so, it becomes a lot more likely to get a six on your roll than not. And so you would start getting tons and tons and tons of dice. I think I told my program to stop at like 30 dice because after that, I need a stopping point somewhere. And at that point, a mechanic that was supposed to generate dice in the, like style points in the like mid tens, I think, at most, would generate like thousands of points. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't always happen, but when it does, it really is, doesn't stop going. Like it, it only stopped at fifty dice or whatever because I told it to. Otherwise, it would just keep going. So these types of mechanics, when when you're doing something a bit odd, but isn't very straightforward. I think it definitely helps to have a good grasp on the math, just to make sure that you're not doing something that's going to break your game. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any suggestions for how people can get that grasp? Uh, you, you mentioned doing programming, but I don't know if everyone has access to that. It's also fair if the answer is just ask you. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll say that I'm willing to help. Like I said, math is my passion. Send Upra a message on Discord with all of your math questions. Yeah, just hit me up. I would also say for those that want to get into dice math in general, the field you're looking at is called combinatorics. It talks about like making decisions and figuring out how many different decision points you can make based on the numbers you have. Like things like the binomial theorem. It's generally called like discrete mathematics, at least here. Mm-hmm. Dealing with like blocks of things, mm -hmm. and I will also say that Python is free. You can download that if you want. There's lots of good tutorials out there. It's like getting familiar with how it works. And yeah, like I mentioned, I'm around to help. I definitely would love to see more designers just dig into what I like to think is the art of math. Where you get to, like, I want to do this thing. And they want to use this method to do it. And to me, that's it's art, baby. Sure. Have you ever seen a situation where the math doesn't line up with the 
player's expectations or a, a designer's expectation. We mentioned the Blades one earlier, but... Yeah, I think there, there's one example that I've heard. I, I wasn't part of the discussion that led up to this. But there was a game, I can't remember what it was called, where you would roll 2d6, and if you got a pair, like if you got, if you got the same number, something bad would happen. Like if, you, if you roll two ones or two twos, something bad would happen. Mm -hmm. And one of, of the advances or like rewards for this game was reducing one of those dice to a d4. So instead of 2d6, you would roll 1d4 and 1d6. And what that designer hadn't accounted for was that the odds of rolling a double are exactly the same. So even if one of the dice is lower, like fewer sides, the odds of rolling a double are exactly the same as before. Really? Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that feels like unintuitive when you think about it. But like once you like map it out, you can see that like, like for every side you're taking away, one of those is an opportunity for a double. And so you're cutting away as like large a fraction of successes as your like failures. So it evens out. It's it's one of those things that once you see it, it makes sense. But before you can dig into it, it's like, hmm, what? That doesn't make sense. Interesting. That doesn't feel right. So would it actually line up better to have something smaller than, or would you need to actually go up on dice sides to be able to gain the result that that designer was looking for? Yeah, I think if if you actually go up in the size, it would go it would become less likely. But it, I think if I'm not misremembering, it depends on the, the size of the biggest die. Mm -hmm. what, what you want? Sure. Interesting. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah, and th at that point, you might as well just increase both dice, really, just for uniformity's sake. Yeah, right. Like going up to two d eight instead of two d six. Interesting. Hmm. One thing that I think we would be remiss to not touch on is uh, cards. Yes, cards. They're their own thing. <laughs> They're similar to dice in many ways, different in many others. Dice and cards are also very much where the combinatorics of it shines. Whereas like you draw a number of cards, you might like pick out a number of cards from the deck here. And also, like, depending on whether or not you shuffle cards back into the deck after you like, use them, if it's just like draw these cards and resolve that and shuffle back in, or if you like, have a hand that you hold on to, the probabilities change. So cards, they're not something that I've explored a lot myself, mostly because I, I try to like, design for online play, and decks of cards are usually difficult. Mm -hmm. But they, they've always intrigued me and it is something definitely something that i would like to do someday now that i think about it and there's one project that i have done that does use cards it's been a while since i thought about it it also ties into something else another resolution mechanic that isn't really about math but it's also about selling the dream like i talked about mm -hmm. the start of this podcast like making sure that your fiction aligns with your mechanics. And math is, of course, one way to do that. But you can also 
is look at the the feeling of what you're doing that your mechanic evokes the right sense of that your that your mechanic matches your fiction sure because i had a chance to talk this would have been last fall probably very close to a year ago to chris Bissett, the author of the wretched game the wretched and alone fame mm-hmm. which famously uses a jenga tower or a wooden block tower i suppose the, the generic term mm-hmm. as its main resolution mechanic like whenever you're trying to do something in the game you pull a block from the tower and you put it on top and if the tower falls you die mm-hmm. it's the main conceit for that game i made a hack of the game at the time that used decks of cards instead and a, a bit more like oblique resolution at the end but eventually leading up to the same thing and the, the point there that i want to make is that even though like we don't we can't really figure out like the specific math of a jenga tower like that, that's there's just way too many vari- variables there yeah if, even if we were to try and like replicate that with dice somehow which some people tried mm-hmm. it's not really about that it's very much about that like tactile feeling of like okay i can feel that the tower is going to fall down if i pull out this one i can feel death coming here <laughs> yeah I've seen, I feel like it might have been last year or earlier this year, there was a month where everyone was coming in to the Discord with ideas for card-based resolutions. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. I definitely feel like I've seen There's so of many of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and kind of in that vein, I, I always wanted to ask, what does changing from dice to cards change about how it feels to play the game? And that's a different question than how it actually mathematically works out. The short answer, like everything else in Blades, is that it depends. <laughs> yeah. Depends on h- how you use them. If you just like draw a card, place it, do something depending on the number of the card, then it's not that different from a die. And then you're basically rolling a d13. And then you put the card back in the deck, shuffle. Then it's not too different from just rolling a die. It's when you get into more stuff than that, that cards really open up their design space it really dig into like the specifics of what cards can do like when you're drawing multiple cards like you can't draw the same card twice so if you have five cards in your hand sure some of them might have the same values but they're not the same card so if you want to like distinguish by suit in some way you basically have a bunch of results in your hand and you get to decide how you use them in a way, sort of similar to how I did the dice in Future Shock. We talked about like the like back and forth. Mm-hmm. You definitely can do this sort of thing with dice as well. You don't put dice results back into a deck the same, the same way that you do with cards. Yeah. I think it goes back to that tactile aspect you mentioned of the mechanics may be similar or the same, but you're changing how you're interacting or perceiving that mechanic and how you interact with it. And what choices you make about it. Yeah, for sure. And there's, of course, all sorts of like fiction evocative things that you can do with a deck of cards that don't necessarily line up with dice. Mm-hmm. Like the fiction of having a hand. Very literal layer. You can be like poker players if you want to do the like Deadlands approach. I've seen that on the Discord at least once, I think. Someone doing like a Wild West and then poker feels more appropriate. Yeah. 
for sure. It, it can also do the sort of thing like I, I have a bunch of resources available to me and they're just mine. They're my secret things. Mm. And then we can work out what they mean in play. And you can also decide if the hand is secret or shared. Yeah. And, and what does that say about your character's interactions are? If you want to, like, in your design, leave that up to the player, whether or not they want to reveal their hand. Just let's say something about the, about the player, if they choose to hide it. Mm -hmm. Or is it like, always a good choice to leave your hand exposed? We talked about design space earlier, like just what you can do with the mechanics that you've chosen. That isn't, that isn't restricted to what's in the game, potency and position and effect. It's also the mechanical choices that you that you make for the game. That's just another angle for you to express it. And I, I think that's one of the beauties of game design is you get to pick and choose how you express it. Yeah. And it won't look the same from table to table, from person to person, from designer to designer. It will be something completely unique. And that's honestly the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of takeaways that I had got from my video game design degree and like various talks that I've gone to as a result of that. But I think the most core idea that I had to re like remember about design that very much influences all of my writing is that thinking about where the game is, this game that I've made, where does it exist? Is it in this like document that I've made? Is it in this like program that I put together? And I think the answer that I've arrived to that is, is no. The game that I've made up is in my head. It's, it's in here, bouncing around with, with my few remaining brain cells. <laughs> and the text that I've made, or the program that I put together, is my attempt to translate that game into something else, into making it something that other people can see. By taking it from my mind into something else, it's changed. It's not exactly what I would do all the time, but it's the best way that I can communicate the idea that's in my brain onto something that other people can understand. And then they take what they see, what they read, and they put that in their brains. And then the game is in there. It's not necessarily my game exactly, but it's their understanding of my attempt to explain the game. Like I've, I've seen like a, a fair amount of like actual plays, of Blades. And I think especially the ones that Harper runs by himself, I've seen like a fair amount of comments in the Discord that like he doesn't run it the way that it's written in the game, like the way that it's like written in the book. Like he changes things. Mm -hmm. And like in a sense, like I get where they're coming from. I can get that like there's this idea that the book is the game but i can also see like that harper has an idea of what the game is in his head and that's where he gets it from like he doesn't need to look at the book to understand what blade says he is it's already got it in there it evolves and changes mm -hmm. per person and their interpretation yeah. of it yeah, yeah like we, we all get our idea of what blade says and the the book is there to help us get that idea. Yeah, very deep. So I think we're coming up on time. Thanks, Umbra, for joining us today. 
uh, for all your insights into your game and also into dice and math and resolution and everything. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will appreciate that. I certainly hope so. Thank you for having me. It's been great. I always love an opportunity to gush about math and <laughs> everything about it that I love. You are extremely passionate about it and you can hear it in your voice and just how it's not just a, yes, I use this. It's I respect it and I wield it. And that I think that really comes through and how you've spoken about it today. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. If our listeners want to learn more about you and your games, where can they go? Yeah, I'll say that that's two different answers to that question. If you want to learn about me and all the stuff that bounces around in here, I'm mostly active on Twitter at Dilarambra. And then if you want to learn about my games, which has included a lot of other sci-fi related stuff recently, it's on dealrumbra.itch.io, where I keep all of that. And occasionally those two intersect, but Twitter is mostly shitposting about myself. <laughs> if you want to get the, the pure feed, that's where, that's where you want to go. The, the, the philosophy of Umbra and how he came up with the transcendence of Future Shock definitely follow him on Twitter. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to plug? I just want to shout out my current regular crew of Blades. <laughs> We've sadly interrupted in the middle of a session. So, Fran, Jay, Torn, I'm sorry. <laughs> we can, we'll get to play again next week. <laughs> nice. And Michelle, how about you? Anything you wanted to plug? Yes, I will go ahead and plug the amazing Blades in the Dark Discord, which this project, this podcast, is one of the many wonderful things that have come out of it. And the Forged in the Dark and Hack channels were very, very active and welcoming and encouraging community. We would love to have you if you are not already there talk about many things from blades and then the hack channels and game design where designers such as umbra jacob and myself as many many others create games talk about philosophies how mechanics can and can't work within a certain aspect you can ask questions and things so yeah if you are not there and also just a heads up i am one of the moderators on that discord so that's why i kind of got involved with this but we would love to see you hope to see you there and if you time it right you might even catch umbra doing some live designing on the voice channel he's been doing that recently i know i sadly missed it the last few days I've me been too busy with other things yeah i've got a few more sessions of that to go before future shock is done nice so stick around I think that's a great idea. I'm hoping to do that too. I've seen a couple other people say that they want to do that too. Yeah, it's been really fun so far just to get to the, talk to people and show off what I'm working on. Nice. I personally would like to plug the game I'm currently designing with uh, Ian, who has been a co-host on this podcast as well, called Spellseekers. It's the one-shot game I was describing, inspired in part by some of the other dice resolution systems. It is Boggle-based, where you are all spellcasters, and you get your spells for the day by playing Boggle, and use those on your score. And it's been a ton of fun. We're opening for uh, any playtesters who are interested, so just shoot me a message. 
other thing I wanted to shout out is not mine, is Tales from the Junior Ganymede, which is a game that I've been wanting to play for a while, but it's very much on theme of how action resolution and everything affects the game. It is a trick-taking game inspired by P.G. Woodhouse novels, and I've been wanting to play that for a long time. I have to check that out. Yeah, it is. It's Forge in the Dark. It still has a lot of the Forge in the Dark things, except for the resolution is trick-taking cards. I have not heard that one before, but also Boggle just gives me anxiety because <laughs> growing up, my mother was absolutely savage in being able mm. to play, and you would never be able to get anything close. It, it came down to a point where my father was like, okay, you can beat her at Scrabble or Boggle. You can go to any restaurant of your choosing for dinner. <laughs> it just it never happened. <laughs> well, one of the good things about Spellseekers is that you're working together. You're not supposed to talk while you're doing it, but if you get any number of spells that someone else didn't, you're helping the team. I, I'll see. I'll think about it. <laughs> I don't know. Uh-huh. Well, folks, this has been a very special episode of Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forged in the Dark games and their designers. I'm Nichelle, and remember, when it comes to design, we all begin our journey as Hacks in the Dark. Mm-hmm.